Well, good morning, everyone. It's a blessing to see you and to worship our awesome God together. Uh, if you would like to have that uh, more opportunity, Wednesday night at 7.30, the worship team is going to lead us in some extended worship, so that should be great. So Wednesday, 7.30, that should be a great time. And also, following the service today, we'll have the AGM. So if this is your church family, you're all invited to stick around for that. Um, and enjoy tea and coffee and the usual. So praise the Lord for his goodness and grace to us all. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are sovereign. You do reign over all things and that you are good and gracious and kind. And thank you for your promises and your word that does not change and your power that is infinite and uh, your kindness and compassion that you've shown us in coming to us when we were lost, calling our names, drawing us near to yourself by sending Jesus to die on our behalf that we could be born again and have eternal life with you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your acceptance and your forgiveness. And pray, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit. Give us understanding of your word and unity of mind and heart as we follow our Lord Jesus together. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 1, is where we'll be. If you'll turn there. I like that the Bible is totally consistent as being God's word. And before the gospel, before Jesus was revealed, God's grace was revealed. We see that in the Old Testament, and we'll see that today, that God's grace is a constant. Those who would cordon off the love and grace of God to the New Testament, I don't think have read the Old Testament because it's everywhere. God's grace is so apparent. And, and God's grace was revealed in a season of terrible wickedness. And there's a redemptive aspect of man's fall into sin. It was not good that sin came into the world. But God, in his wisdom, he used it as an opportunity to show his grace and mercy in a way that he wouldn't previously if everything was all well. If man was always righteous, there wouldn't have been an opportunity for this full expression of God's grace, that he was showing his favor not based upon merit, but out of his goodness. The blessing of God, it overcomes the curse. And his goodness is greater than sin. His, his goodness is greater than death. It's like light overcomes the darkness. Life reigns over death. And in the previous chapter, we read about the genealogy of Seth, how people lived for a very long time before the global flood, how Enoch walked with God and was not, and God took him without seeing death. And we are also introduced to Lamech, who sought uh, rest from the curse that sin had brought on the earth. And it said that men then began to call on the name of the Lord. And that Enoch and Noah walked with him. So it was a big week last week. And we imagine like those two guys, they walk with God. Anyone could have walked with God, but Enoch and Noah did walk with God. And we might look at them as the bright spots in a dark world, but really... They weren't. It was God who is bright. It's God who is the light of the world, the light that shines in the darkness. He was the only hope. He was their only comfort and rest for mankind. Man didn't see it, and many, most of them didn't even care. Judgment was coming, but God would give them warning. He would give them a means of deliverance by his grace. So picking up in Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, 
that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now, I would rank these verses among the most controversial in the Bible because sound believers ascribe to different views of them. And knowing that a passage is controversial, it gives us pause because our personal stance is not the final word on the matter. There's been many people who have discussed and had differences of opinion, and that will continue to this day and beyond. So I approach a passage like this with an open Bible, with an open heart, interpreting Scripture with Scripture, knowing my understanding is limited, knowing I need to be taught to stick with what's plainly revealed and not to stoke controversy. Now, one key point is the use of the sons of God in verse 2 and 4. And if you look at the Old Testament, every other time this is used, it's in reference to an angelic spirit. And it seems, some would say, that this is just speaking of the descendants of Cain and the descendants of Seth intermarrying, but there's more going on here than that. Um, and what we see is the book of Genesis, it deals with God creating the earth, the things that are in it, the living things. And it's evident God created the, the angelic hosts as well. We've already been introduced to one, Satan in the garden. He was lifted up with pride, and other passages speak of demons, angelic spirits who were loyal to Satan rather than God. During the, so if we fast forward now to the ministry of Christ, we see him casting out demons. We see angels ministering to him on a couple of occasions. And he demonstrated complete power and authority over all the spiritual realm, all the physical realm, any illness. He had total knowledge and authority over all. We just studied the book of Job. In the book of Job, Satan was permitted to afflict Job, through which God doubly blessed him and revealed his mercy and compassion. And while God rules all and has authority over all, Daniel chapter 9 in Ephesians 6, it tells us that there are principalities and powers, that there are spiritual rulers of wickedness in high places and we can still stand strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. So there can be a spiritual force behind a physical government. And this passage seems to suggest, even as man transgressed by his sin, right, by eating what God said, do not eat, the day you eat of that tree, you will surely die, that some evil angels, they desired fame and uh, fertility, they transgressed, they indwelt men. Jesus said in Matthew twenty-two thirty that angels do not marry, that they are not given in marriage. But some sons of God took um, wives as they chose. So they used men as their pawns because demons in themselves have no power to impregnate human beings. So man and angels both transgressed in sexual perversion that led to judgment. And this could be what Jude alludes to in Jude 1, 5 through 7. Where he says, but I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, 
having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. He explains that some angels did not keep their proper estate, and they were chained by God awaiting final judgment, and he connects it then to the destruction of Sodom. And Ezekiel 16, 49, it says, the sin of Sodom was pride. That's the first sin and the root of really all transgression against a holy God without the fear of him, will not submit to him and his ways. Now it's evident, if you look at verse four, that there were people considered to be giants before the sons of God transgressed. It says, there were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Now this makes it plain that their giant stature was not a product of demonic influence. There were giants before the sons of God transgressed. There were giants after they transgressed. And we'll see after the flood, there continued to be some giants in the land. Not because of demonic power. They were great and men of renown who were not giants at all. They were powerful. They were strong. They imagined themselves beyond the power of any, beyond God's reach. And they lived for a long time. And God said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Yet his days shall be 120 years. The two basic interpretations for this are that uh, God would greatly reduce the lifespan of human beings. But since Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and those even after the flood lived beyond 120 years I think the better interpretation is to say that God gave them 120 years of warning before uh, the flood came and destroyed the world. So 120 years before the coming judgment is when God spoke those words. Picking up Genesis 6, verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God looked upon mankind, and he saw their thoughts, he saw their deeds, and he saw their wickedness was great, that every intent was to do evil continually. That is a bad situation. It's like the whole framework of man's lifestyle was built on the desire to sin more, to advance in sin. We've seen a lot of advances in technology these days, right? Since even I was a kid. But you think about trying to use your means to sin more, like to do more abomination than those before you. That was the intent of their heart continuously, and it grieved God. It's like they craved for sin. They lusted for it. They sought it with all their hearts. There's a point where a building is beyond repair, and it's condemned, right? The door is shut. It's like this building has to come down. It's uninhabitable. You can't just fix a rafter. It is condemned. There's a time where an infection can become so severe that a digit or a limb needs to be removed, to save the life of the person and promote their health, that it's, it's a risk for the whole body if it's to remain. And God saw the corruption of sin on the earth, that it was so severe that mankind and animal life would be cut off in judgment. 
and sin's destructive consequence would be known by all. It would be a global event. Now, God was not surprised by what transpired. He wasn't sorry as if he made a mistake, uh, like he regretted, like, oh, that was dumb. Like, God does not. He, he knows everything. He doesn't make mistakes. His being sorry for creating man, it's an anthropomorphism. That's to portray God in an earthly way to give us better understanding of what he's thinking. Because some of you have, uh, you're, you're in touch with your feelings. Some of us are not. I'm like, I'm pretty much not in touch with my feelings so much. I have to kind of talk about things before I go, yeah, yeah, I'm kind of feeling this way. I need to express and to think and to kind of put it through a meat grinder to figure out how I really feel about something because I'm like, oh, I'm fine or I'm not fine. But why? I don't know. So God, his mind, his thoughts, his ways are above ours. He feels infinitely more than you feel. He cares infinitely more than you care. And so he takes it down to our level and we can understand when you feel sorry about something, when you are grieved by something, God's like, that's how I'm feeling. This is in ways that you can understand. So he's translated his word into our language and now he's like translating his feelings down to our level so we can understand how he's feeling. He's grieved, he's pained. We can be so reactionary. Like something that's bugging us over here can cause us to lash out over here, right? It's like we forgot an umbrella, we're wet, and we're uncomfortable, and so we yell at the dog, or we, we get upset, we, we're on edge. Now God is not like that. He's not like, you know, Adam disobeyed me, and it's really been grating on my nerves, and so it's gonna impact my decisions going forward. Not at all. God is not fussed. He's not troubled by what troubles us. He was greed. He was pained, but he retained his mercy, his goodness, his grace, his righteousness, his wisdom. God is righteous. He does not change. He does not make mistakes, as it says in Malachi 3.6. And we read this in Numbers 23.19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and he will not do? Or has he spoken? and he will not make it good. Now God doesn't say how animals were corrupted by sin. We see mankind corrupted by sin, but we have to consider God the ultimate expert in life, sin, righteousness, judgment, right? He created all things, he knows. Now if there was a master potter who was doing a demonstration and was doing something on the wheel and we're like, That's, I can actually see what that is, that's looking good, and he's like, no, 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 and just smashes it down. What was wrong with that? That looked perfectly fine. He said, no, it's not, up, it's not what I'm looking for. It's not up to my standard. And if God should make something, you decide, no, he is God and he has that right. We'll give potters that right to do with their clay. Shouldn't we give God the right to do with all that's his? The takeaway for us is to consider how awful and terrible sin must be to result in death and judgment. Verse eight. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So in contrast to those who were seeking wickedness continually, pursuing and enjoying sin, Noah found grace in God's sight. And grace, it's translated favor in the Old Testament. The doctrine of God's grace would be developed more fully in the New Testament, as we'll see with Christ uh, and the gospel. But it has the connotation of being agreeable, finding favor in someone's sight, 
like Ruth 2.10. Boaz, he showed kindness to Ruth, and this is what it says. So she fell on her face, bowed down to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? Ruth assumed that Boaz would prefer the local population, but he noticed her, though she was from Moab. He was kind to her. He provided for her. He cared to protect her and provide. And that was surprising. The same word we see used in Esther 5.2 when Esther approached the king. She broke the rules of the Medes and the Persians that you could not appear before the king uninvited. And it says, so it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that she found favor in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. Grace and favor, it can only be extended by someone in authority and power. Someone who has the power to do differently. And God had extended grace to Noah. Noah found favor in God's sight. Boaz could have discriminated against Ruth. He's like, okay, she's not from around here. I'm going to help the local population, the people who are hard done by. I'm going to prefer them first. But no, he, she found favor in his sight. King Ahasuerus, he could have executed Esther for breaking the law, but instead she found favor in his sight and he was merciful to her. He extended favor to her and he offered her half the kingdom, right? That's grace. God could have destroyed Noah with the rest of mankind and been totally justified doing so, but he found grace in the eyes of God. It's out of God's goodness, not man's worthiness, that grace is given and received. Genesis 6, verse 9, this is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God, and Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. As Enoch before him, Noah walked with God. He's described as a just man, right, perfect in his generations. He had three sons. God looked upon the earth and the corruption, and mankind was heading to ruin. The earth was filled with violence. That word suggests doing wrong and force. Proverbs 16, 29 says, A violent man entices his neighbor and leads him in a way that is not good. So violence is really a violation of God's order. See the similarity of the words, violence and violation. It's, it's to take what you will, to do what you want, to inflict harm, to lie to steal, to ignore the commands of God, to walk contrary to him. That is violence. We think of violence like as a punch-up or something. But violence is really violating God and his law. It's, a, it's, a, it's like an act of war upon God. That is violence. When you break God's laws and you oppose him. Instead of the painful consequences of sin correcting people and that correcting their ways, like, oh, sin brings death. Death is bad. Therefore, I will do the things that please God and find favor in his sight. 
Um, men instead ran with it. They gave themselves over to sin. They would not be governed by it. They wouldn't be corrected by God or their sin. And man's appetite for sin was insatiable. There would be a consequence for greedily swallowing down sin like the hungry fish that takes the bait. It's looking for the next snack after it's swallowed down that bait that suddenly the hook is set. And that's what had happened. Noah found grace in God's sight not because he was sinless. I did read some, I did read at least one commentator that said, well, see, this is why he found favor in God's sight, because he was righteous. You're like, no, 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 no. No, due to faith in God. Turn to Hebrews eleven seven, because then it wouldn't be grace. If he was looked upon with favor because he always did the things that pleased God, that is not grace. But he found grace in the Lord's sight. Hebrews 11, 7. And this is such a key point for us. It says, By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. Noah, by faith, walked with God. God revealed things yet unseen to him. He told him what he was going to do 100 years in advance. And the fear of God it moved Noah to trust God, to obey God, to do something that was probably not in his line of work. Shipbuilding. Right? Yeah, not near the ocean. He wasn't thinking about trade. Hmm, this could be useful. No, not at all. God told him something, and then God gave him a directive, and he obeyed him. He trusted God. He had faith in God, and thus found favor in his sight. He was able to receive the grace of God because he believed God and trusted God. And how did Noah condemn the world? His obedience, it pronounced a guilty verdict on all. It's kind of like this. It'd be one thing if every student in the class were to fail the test miserably, right? Not even show up on the day. But if one student would show up on the day, sit the exam at the proper time, an open book test, and with assistance from the professor finish and, and pass the exam, failure could not be laid upon the teacher, but upon those negligent students who would not come, who refused to sit the test, who, would not, who did not think themselves uh, it was required that they should sit a test. It's like, well, if nobody knew when the class was, if nobody knew about the test, you could say, well, the teacher's a bad communicator. Obviously, there's a fault there. But in this case, Noah, he walked with God. He heard God, believed God, obeyed God, and in doing so, it showed that the people were negligent, not God. God in no way was negligent because he warned them. He gave them opportunity. Anyone could have sought God. Anyone could have walked with God. But we read of two people, from Adam to Noah, who walked with God over almost 2,000 years. If there's no gaps in the genealogies, two. Anyone could have, but not everyone did. God gave every person the capacity to know him and to love him, to seek him, to fear him to obey him. And by faith, Noah became an heir to righteousness, having received his favor. 
Now, when you think of an heir, a king gives birth to a firstborn son. That's usually the heir to the throne, right? You don't become the heir by paying your taxes on time. Like, oh, you paid your tax, good. Now you are the heir to the kingdom. No, that's not how it works. You are born into that role, right? Like, you've given gifts worthy of royalty, so you are the heir. No, it's a singular term, an heir. It's like the line passes through you, right? Noah didn't find favor because he was righteous or pious in himself, but his faith in God was accounted to him as righteousness and thus found favor in God's sight. And this connection between finding favor and God's righteousness, we see that in the New Testament. Turn there in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. To become an heir to righteousness, you must be born again. You must be born again. That's how you are an heir to righteousness. Ephesians 2, 4 through 9. And we're born again by faith in Christ. Ephesians 2, 4. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast." Noah finding favor in God's sight, becoming an heir of faith by righteousness, that is a lesson to us that we can be to others through the faith that we have in Jesus. Because when we're born again by faith in Christ, we become heirs of righteousness. We are raised together, made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ. Not will be, but made to. That is our position. That is our standing by God's grace. He has exalted his chosen, his beloved. And we don't deserve that. So God, he extends his grace to you today. He extends it to all that would be born again to find favor in God's sight as Noah did. It's impossible to become an heir to righteousness by trying to avoid evil or trying to do good. That is not the way you are an heir to righteousness, being born again by faith in Christ. Now Noah didn't know Christ But this is a foreshadowing of God's grace that he would extend through his own son, Jesus. Moving on in Genesis 6, verse 14. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits. It's width 50 cubits. It's height 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and you shall furnish it to a cubit from above. And set the door of the ark in its side. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. And behold, I myself am bringing flood waters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh which, in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Noah was told to make an ark, meaning a chest or box um, of gopher wood. And this variety is a bit of a curiosity. It's unknown to us to this day. There are suggestions, but no one really knows. 
And this is the only mention of this kind of wood in the Bible. Could be an antediluvian species that we are unaware of that perished during or after the flood. And some say that that speaks to how it was made. Um, the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it renders it as squared timber. And the Vulgate, which is the Latin translation of the Bible, as planed timber. So those um, different uh, ver- or translations, they suggest that it was how it was made rather than the, the kind of wood that it was made. So one thing we know, it was made of wood. And he had to make it. So he had to fashion this wood and he was to cover it inside and outside with pitch, which would have been bitumen or tar. That would make it waterproof. So you'd seal the joints or just paint the whole thing. So it'd be black inside and out with this bitumen. And it's a project of daunting size. Some, so a cubit is from your elbow to the tips of your fingers. Cubit, a span is the width of your hand. Those are some Bible measurements for you. So a cubit all up around 150 meters in length, 25 meters wide, 15 meters tall, and based upon modern maritime knowledge, it would have been a seaworthy vessel. Had a good center of gravity, nice and low. It wouldn't have toppled over. Uh, And it had three decks that provided storage and also um, stability and structural integrity. There was a door on the side. There was a window fitted around the top. There's a lot of artistic renderings of the ark, so I don't know which one's the best, so I just said, forget about it. You guys can look into different types. And I think that's pretty cool that, like, God just says, make it like this. He gave him dimensions, but he didn't tell him exactly how to build it. He needed to, he needed really the Lord to help him to build it right. Um, And people wonder, they say, well, how long did it take for Noah to build the ark? The Bible does not say. You can look. The Bible does not say how long. Some suggest it took around 100 years because in Genesis 5.32, when we're introduced to Noah, he he had his sons by the time he was 500. Then in Genesis 7.11, we're told in the 600th year of his life, the rain began to fall. The best we can do is guess. But what we do know is that it was a very large boat, very large ship, without a mast, without a sail, without a rudder, without an anchor that took a very long time to construct. And Noah did it. And I think he's had some help from his sons or servants or something. But yeah, like I said before, likely a big shift in occupation from what he did previously. And then God told him why building the ark. And we like to know why, don't we? When you're told to do something, we're like, oh, why? Why should I spend decades building a large ship. He said, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. And I love faith, faith in God, because you don't even need an explanation. You don't need to hear why before you'll obey. I believe he would have obeyed even not hearing why, because he believed God and he trusted him. But God told him, and for our sakes as well, that we can read this. So God said, I'm going to bring floodwaters to destroy all flesh. Everything living would die. But God would provide the ark as a means to save Noah and his family, according to God's promise, that he would establish his covenant with him. They'll go into the ark. 
And this covenant is detailed later. God doesn't outline the whole covenant here, but in chapter 9, that he will never again flood the earth with water to destroy it, and he would affirm it by a rainbow in the sky. That was his covenant he made with him. And also that he would require a reckoning from anyone who shed the blood of men. The motifs that we see throughout this passage that will be repeated throughout the scripture is that the curse of sin brings death and judgment from God, that God makes a distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous, that those who find favor in his sight will be saved from death and provided for and protected, and that God makes binding covenants with people. And he's made a covenant with us through our Lord Jesus Christ. So this, the destruction that would happen, this offer of life and protection, it shows that all is under God's jurisdiction. He has the power to destroy and he has the power to save. Verse 19, And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds after their kind, of animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind, Two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. And you shall take for yourself of all food that is eaten, and you shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. Thus Noah did, according to all that God commanded him, so he did. Now the purpose of making the ark so large was to preserve the animals that would be kept safe, that they could be renewed after the flood. Verse 20, it says that God would direct the animals to come to Noah. So he didn't have to be like the crocodile hunter as well. He, would, he could build the ark and he would gather the food, but the animals would come to him at the right time, just like animals migrate and they have instincts that were like, wow, how does the animal know to do that? How does the cercada know to come out of the ground seven years or however long after it's been buried? It's remarkable how beasts, birds, and reptiles were more submissive and obedient to God than the rest of mankind, who would actually come when he said, go. <laughs> and they went to him. So Noah was to gather food for people and animals to eat. Looking to the future, the millennial reign of Christ, we see the behavior and the diet of animals being different than they are now. It was God who made possible this peaceful cohabitation of all these different species and kinds of animals. We read in Isaiah 11, 6 and 7 of this future state under Christ's rule, the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. As I said last week, we don't give God often enough credit. He's the one who made animals to live. He created them. He's given them instincts. He can tell them where to come and go. He can lead a wild male and female of a kind to approach an ark at the proper time without a lead. Like he can lead them without a lead. Pretty cool. Uh, he can reveal future plans to man. He can destroy the wicked. He can preserve all who find favor in his sight. He can flood the whole earth with water. He can cause the wolf to dwell with the lamb for the lion to eat straw and be satisfied. We go, oh no, that's a carnivore. Has to eat this kind of food and has to live in this environment. You're like, oh, hold on. 
This is God's creation, and he can do whatever he wants with it. Let's, let's just lay aside our stumbling blocks and see what God has done and will do, because this is speaking of the future under Christ's rule. Judgment for sin was coming. God had marked them with destruction. And to them, they felt like they, life was going to continue forever. They were going to continue pursuing their sin and uh, domineering one another and oppressing the poor. To Noah, perhaps, as he looked upon the world and he saw wickedness everywhere. And he said, when is this going to change? For year after year after year. But God would destroy the unrighteous. He would save the heirs of righteousness. And there's a passage that I want to turn to in 2 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 4, where Peter talked to New Testament believers and he went back to the time of Noah to give them encouragement and comfort about what God does and how God plans and how God knows what's going on. The things that really trouble us, the things that grieve us that we see in the world know that God has them in hand, that we don't need to worry, and we can be comforted in him. Peter was talking about people being exploited by false teachers, by heresy. No one's getting away with murder. No one's getting away with deceit or lies. God knows. That's the point that Peter's going to make here in 2 Peter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. The first point that Peter makes is that God will not spare the wicked. He will bring them into judgment. Whether it's in this life, whether you see it or not, know that God will. He will bring the wicked into judgment. So we should, as people who are wicked, take that personally. Say, I, I should learn from this example. That was one point. The arresting of the sinning angels, the uh, burning of Sodom, a warning to those who continue in sin. The next point, that God knows who are righteous and how to save them, how to deliver them. He knows how to deliver the godly out of all temptations, all trials and tests of faith, and he will make the ungodly answer for their sin. So the deliverance of Noah from the flood, that was a great encouragement to the early church. Those people who were grieved by the heresies and the falsehoods they heard proclaimed even among them, that God knows how to deliver. God knows how to save. It's above you, it's beyond you, but not him. He is faithful and he is good. So trust him and obey him. How is a person made an heir of righteousness? 
by finding grace in God's sight, by faith in Jesus Christ. Noah deserved to drown. Lot deserved to burn. We have to understand that. But God spoke to Noah. He found grace in his sight. An angel took Lot by the hand and led him out when he was tarrying. And they said, you gotta go. And he's like, well, there's this over here and that. Like, no, you gotta go. They helped him. God helped Noah. He preserved him. We are kept safe by the God who is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance, that all would trust him and obey. We're saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves. God knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. May that move us to seek the Lord. May that move us to trust him. When you are grieved, when you are struggling, when there are temptations that you feel, this is too big for me, it's not too big for God. And he's not troubled by it at all because he is God. And we need him. His desire is toward you. His favor is upon you. Let's receive that by trusting him, by believing him, that he is God and he is good. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you are good, that you are a savior, that left to our own devices, Lord, we head to ruin, we head to disaster, and we're lost and hopeless without you. But through Jesus, you have given us the hope of eternal life. You have demonstrated your love for us through his death and his, your power through his resurrection. And we thank you for the new life that you've given us through Christ. And thank you for your word that instructs us, that warns us, that shows us the ways that please you. And Lord, may we lay hold of that grace that you have offered and extended to us out of your goodness. And thank you, Lord, for the hope that we have of salvation, for the covenant that you've made, that you won't, you're not sorry for making that covenant with us. You want to save. You want to see us turn from our wicked ways and be healed, be restored, be made new. So, Lord, I pray for anyone here who is grieving, who is troubled, who feels beset by temptations. Lord, thank you that you are able to deliver us out of all temptation, that you keep us strong through any trial, through any attack. Lord, we can be strong in the Lord in the power of your might to stand, having the armor of God, knowing who our God is and that you are in command. Thank you, Lord, for your word, for your power, and for saving us that we, we are here today because of your salvation of Noah and his family. Every bird that we see, every mammal that we see on this planet is because you have preserved them. And Lord, we are here because of Christ who has saved us. And I pray that we would just rejoice in you. We would celebrate your goodness and we would intercede on behalf of others who do not know you yet and that through us, your joy, your care, and love would be known to all the world. In Jesus' name, amen.